Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here with Sean Hopkin to talk about Abinadi in the Book of Mormon. Sean D. Hopkin is an assistant professor of ancient scripture at BYU. He's published and presented papers on the Jewish concept of a premortal life and the Jewish longing for Zion, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Psalm 22, Ordinance and Ritual in the Law of Moses and in the Book of Isaiah and the Connection Between Jewish and LDS Beliefs and Viewpoints. Sean is the editor of Abinadi, He Came Among Them in Disguise, a new release from the BYU Religious Studies Center. And I'll also add, this is a project of BOMA. Can you tell us what BOMA is, Sean? Sure. So, and I got to give myself an associate professor as of just a few months ago. I got to get that fixed, don't I? But BOMA, the Book of Mormon Academy, started 2014 here at BYU. It was organized by the then department chair, Camille Frank Olson, and uh, with some leadership and guidance from people like Robert Millett, Paul Hoskison, Dennis Largi, and others. And they brought together some young scholars who were interested in studying the Book of Mormon and wanted to foster uh, scholarship on the Book of Mormon here at BYU. There have been good scholarship done here, but a lot of great scholarship elsewhere. And they wanted a place where people could brainstorm sort of think tank Book of Mormon issues, do some tools for teachers, do some scholarship together, help each other with our scholarship, bring in good scholars to lecture, that kind of thing. And it's been a lot of fun. I was the first chair of it, and that's when we started this Abinadi project. Sean, five chapters in the Book of Mormon. This is a really thick book. (laughs) You write in your introduction that Abinadi is a figure whose page count is significantly smaller than his prophetic imprint. Tell me a little bit about what you meant by that. John Hilton's chapter, amongst other chapters, talks about intertextuality. We'll probably talk about that more later. And he says things, he teaches things, he he has an impact in his, and you know, his page count is small, Abinadi's is, but I mean, his time frame is extremely small. He's around, at least that last time, for just a few very brief days. And the things he teaches have just an enormous impact, of course, leading to Alma the Elder and the institution of an institution, a church, that then impacts the entire Nephite society. And the doctrines that he teaches, the theological concepts he teaches, just weave themselves throughout the rest of the Book of Mormon. It's shocking, really, for such... And But the Book of Mormon does this. you got Samuel the Lamanite, who is sort of this nobody that comes out of nowhere and has this huge impact, and Abinadi is one of these figures. And, and I love that they're there in the Book of Mormon, that Mormon, uh, sort of an institutional kind of a guy recognizes them, sees them, and brings them in, sees their impact, and doesn't let us forget about what could have been the forgotten prophet and the forgotten impact. So we don't want to forget him either. I quite enjoyed this book. If you are a fan of Grant Hardy's Understanding the Book of Mormon, I think this is that book on steroids. You really (laughs) go in depth. And in fact, I think it's easier to remember 
what we're being taught by these scholars because of the way it's presented. You decided to break it up into four different lenses. What's the benefit of that approach? I like the lens analogy, right? So if you think of you've got your eyesight and then you put something in there that sharpens or focuses it differently. Those who are a little bit older will remember the movie Dead Poet Society and and how this uh, charismatic teacher has his students. He's trying to help them see the world from a new angle. He has them all stand on their desks. Well, what looks different from up here? There's the great uh, story of the blind men describing the elephant, and each of them have a hold of a different part of the elephant, and they think they're describing something totally different. And as we come from different angles, as we approach things in different ways, different things shine in the text. And you can totally miss some beautiful aspects of a text and what it's trying to accomplish just approaching it from one angle. So if all we're looking is doctrinal, particularly if what we're doing is sort of an LDS gospel principles manual doctrinal, let's see, how does this teach the same things I'm learning in Sunday school every day, then that that's good. That's one helpful way to approach it. But we miss this richness of the discourse. And that's why we did that with the title, He Came Among Them in Disguise, right? So Abinadi reveals himself. There's this reveal with Abinadi, and, and uh, we're trying to help reveal the richness of Abinadi's discourse by coming at it from different angles and different approaches. Oh, that's quite clever. I did not catch that double entendre <laughs> well, <laughs> there, but I can see it having read the book. When we think of Benedict, we think, well, he had one convert and that was his imprint. But even in the narrative approach, we're able to glimpse his prophetic imprint. So let's start with that narrative study. What does the Benedict narrative say about... Nephite identity. As you look at the storyline, the way the story is told, the way that it's framed by Mormon, what stories he puts it next to and in contact with, there are, and, and your question is is really well, well phrased, well formed, because th- there are different things that come out about Nephite identity. What does Mormon care about? I think many people have asked why. It seems like such a side journey, this Abinadi story. You know, we're, we're going along. We've got King Benjamin's incredible discourse. And then we jump over here and spend many chapters on this sort of flashback. What's it doing there? Belknap's paper and Ludlow's, Jared Ludlow's paper, Frank Judd's paper, they all take a look at what is Mormon trying to accomplish? How is how does the storyline fit together to reveal things about Nephite interests? And one of the things that comes out is that this appears to be, if you look at Mormon's overall purposes and the language that he's using, this appears to be a story about rebellion, redemption, different readings of scriptural text, of the Isaiah scriptural text that then can even be used to support a rebellious attitude and a prideful attitude. Zenith's people appear to be a people that believe they're doing exactly what God wants them to do. They've redeemed the land. They've come back to the land of their fathers. And this is an old Israelite concept. You've got to return to the land and redemption is tied to the land. And they've come back to the land of Nephi and they're prospering. They've built a temple, a palace. They're they're fulfilling the words of Isaiah and, and they're then 
so frustrated when this enigmatic prophet comes among them with negative messages about what they're doing and what their king is doing. They just want to feel good about what they're doing. And he's saying, you've missed the point. You're using the scriptures and, and you're misunderstanding what God is doing right now with this people. And so the Nephite quest for redemption, their feelings of estrangement being in Zarahemla, a land far removed from what they had originally envisioned as their promised land. They're longing for a return. And this is, it would appear, what leads Zenith back in the first place. I'm going to redeem the land. I'm going to do it. We kind of get caught up in reading the story. Okay, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, thinking that the events are being presented chronologically. And one thing that Dan Belknap brought forth was that, okay, we read this big speech by King Benjamin, and then we get the story of King Limhi being found, and the story of Zenith leaving, and the story of Abinadi. Mm -hmm. But King Benjamin's speech is based on what Abinadi taught, which goes back to the whole thought of the Book of Mormon kind of defies time and space when it talks about things. Do you want to address that? Sure. I think that's really well said. And it's something that will potentially come up later when we talk with New Testament references and, and New Testament intertextuality. Yeah, the Book of Mormon is in one sense, it is so chronological, so clearly chronological, right? Year by year by year. And then Mormon just throws a wrench in it. And, and he gives you enough clues to, to track it down, but he doesn't make it overt at all. What is coming when? And there is this, as it might be said, prophet seeing eye to eye across space and time, right? At teaching truth as one and quoting each other and sometimes even quoting each other out of chronological sequence. And it's not exactly out of chronological sequence, but if you put the sequence together, Abinadi, as you said, comes before Benjamin. And so Benjamin either is getting it from the same source, which is, of course, God, the an angel, uh, or is getting it from people who learned from Abinadi, or as Hilton suggests, this is a speculative piece, right? Abinadi is Abinadi the angel that comes in the textual interweavings. They're very strong with Benjamin's quotation of the angel and things that Abinadi says. And so you think, well, I mean, does Abinadi get to teach Benjamin? And that, that's a little too much. And yet it's a fun possibility, right? He does some speculation there, but he also does some math to yeah. back yeah. up that King Benjamin was quoting Abinadi. He says, okay, if we use the chronology in the Book of Mormon given to us, King Benjamin came 50 years after Abinadi died. Plus, he quotes the scripture that says they wrote down Abinadi's words. Uh -huh. Yep. Thank you, John Hilton. A shout out <laughs> to you that <laughs> yes. I, I'm defending your position here. Yeah, it's it's actually, it is. It's well charted chronologically. You don't see clearly how one gets to the other, but there are some possibilities. The written down words, and then there's this angelic figure, right? Who is this? And, and we don't know the answer. But those talks are clearly interwoven and interconnected. It, it would appear that Mormon is, is happy for us to see that. I mean, some of the phraseology is so 
blatantly, clearly, overtly interconnected. He wants us to connect those two. But the really fun discovery is then saying, wow, these, these beautiful teachings about the suffering and atonement and resurrection of Christ that we encounter for the first time in King Benjamin, actually chronologically, Abinadi appears to be the source of these. He's this fountain. He's the fountainhead, right, for all of these beautiful teachings about Christ. And Joe Spencer does some things on that, a shout out to him, and, and some other things that he's written about Abinadi's approach to the role of Christ and the role of a savior. Before we leave the narrative lens, yes. let's just go to the ultimate scene of Abinadi before mm. Noah and the priests. Why was he accused of blasphemy? I think we we all realize that King Noah didn't like what he was saying about them. But in the past, maybe, I have just thought he didn't like being criticized for all his riches. Mm -hmm. But there was actually a theological reason that he was being tried. Yeah. There are two different things that could be said in answer to that question. The thing they say, the accusation they give, that he's taught that God himself would come down and suffer, this doesn't play into their theology the way they're reading Isaiah. For them, this is the triumphant redemption and Zenith prepared for it and Noah is fulfilling it and the concept of a suffering God, a God who descends and dies, this is blasphemous. And then, of course, there is the insurrection against King Noah, right? So you've got those two sort of interwoven concepts, and it actually ends up uh, being similar to the way they interweave and sometimes confuse issues in the trial of Jesus, right? Is it insurrection or is it blasphemy? What are we getting him for? And they'll, they'll shift it around a little bit according to the time. The accusation against Noah the king is tied to theological issues about God and redemption and what redemption means, and the concept of a suffering God is not okay with them. That's sacrilegious. That's blasphemous to them. What I took away was that King Noah and his priests were interpreting Isaiah as applying to the people of Zenith, mm. and Abinadi said, no. You go ahead and keep the law of Moses, which you're not keeping anyways, <laughs> for now. Then he begins his discourse on Christ. Mm -hmm. That's where your true salvation shall come, just yeah. through Christ. You're absolutely right. And there is this battle against the concept of the Son of God who would descend and suffer for all. And Abinadi is highlighting it, and they are furious about his teachings about Christ. They would like to take what we as Christians might consider an Old Testament approach to this, right? And he's taking more of a, a forward-looking view. No, God is going to descend. The Son of God will descend, and, and he will suffer and die. And they're disturbed by that, and, and they kill him for it, of course. So. And let's just review. The Old Testament approach is to think that Messiah would be a conquering king. Absolutely. So to have a suffering king just changes the paradigm, right? And Abinadi is 
pointing to this Isaiah 53 that is a very tricky chapter in interpretation. They've sort of left it out of their interpretation. What about the suffering part, right? The conquering king. And so Noah as conquering king, Noah even as a messianic figure, right? That seems disturbing to us as Christians to consider them thinking of Noah in those terms. But Noah, in a sense, is the conquering king. They've beaten the Lamanites. He has conquered. They're living in the messianic age is, is one way of understanding the way they view themselves, right? And they're going to continue to subjugate those that had subjugated them. And this is a way of reading things in the Hebrew Bible or in the Old Testament. This is an interpretive lens that was very common, and Abinadi is overturning it. It makes people angry when Jesus overturns it later. Jesus also plays a similar role. He's going to overturn these very comfortable in-the-box formulations, right? And, and that's what Abinadi is doing with the Zenophites, the Noahites, comfortable self-view. We've got it all as well in Zion. And he says, nope, not all as well in Zion. Let's turn now to the intertextual and intratextual lenses, which I found the most fascinating sections of the book and also the most refreshing because they were so transparent and they talked about issues that we have in the past as a culture maybe tried to negate. Can you just define those terms for us? You briefly mentioned them, but define them for us. Sure. Intertextuality deals with how books quote from each other or allude to each other across texts. Inter, intra would be within the text, right? So uh, particularly in a, a text like the Book of Mormon, where you have different authors embedded in one book and they are quoting from each other, then you say, well, is that inter or intra? And we decided we would call it intra. It's quoting itself, right? And John Hilton's work builds on this intratextual how does Abinadi, how do his words influence later prophets? But then my paper talks about Old Testament intertextuality, how Abinadi is quoting and very clearly and overtly from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible. And Nick Frederick talks about New Testament intertextuality. I think that's part of what you're saying. This is so clear and open and overt, and, and we're not hiding from this. We're embracing it and saying, what can we learn from it? We've mentioned that Abinadi's teachings were pervasive throughout the Book of Mormon. Even though we have Nephi 1-2, the first things that were translated were the 115 pages, 116, 114. I never remember those hundred-ish pages. So you can think of the teachings there, how they spread through the Book of Mormon. You mentioned King Benjamin what other prophets do we see quoting the concepts that Abinadi first brings to the attention of Noah? There's a immediate influence, as you might expect, on Alma the Elder, but of course we don't have a lot of Alma the Elder's teachings. The one that we get the most teachings from in sort of first word language is going to be Alma the Younger, and you see him in his fascination with, his attention to the concept of the resurrection as he teaches his sons, as he teaches in the Ammonihites, as he teaches the Zoramites, dealing with these resurrection themes and building upon this concept of 
of the importance of the resurrection and the personal nature of Christ's atonement, the infinite and intimate nature of Christ's atoning suffering. Alma the Younger is the most important, but his missionary companion, who would have also learned from him and probably, possibly also learned from Abinadi through Alma the Elder, Amulek does a lot with it. King Benjamin is maybe shows the most influence. And I think of King Benjamin as one of the most influential lecturers in the Book of Mormon. And his things interweave consistently, constantly, particularly where he's quoting the angel. His text interweaves with Abinadi. Most importantly, on the topics of infant salvation, on the topics of resurrection, and on the topics of Christ's atoning sacrifice. And it's not just topic, it's verbiage as well. Yeah, yeah, it's words. So you get uh, the concept of first resurrection, and I'm trying to remember the words that he uses for the salvation of children. Those words are very clear. You've got when Amulek is quoting the Son of God, the very eternal Father. He's the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. That sounds now like this tricky passage from Abinadi where he's talking about Christ as the Father and the Son. You get concepts about the sting of death being and the bands of death being broken and leading then to a resurrection. So yes, it's very specific and powerful wordings are borrowed. It's almost like they stick in the memory and then they they resurface later on in these prophets. Or it's like the later prophets are giving a nod to, pointing back to their earlier prophetic leader. Let's move on to Christology and Nick Frederick's chapter. As I said before, it's kind of been whispered before. You know, there's passages in here that are like the King James Version. And not only that, these were supposed to be Old Testament Jews. So why do they know about Christ? This seems kind of anachronistic. Plus, some of the discourses mirror those of Paul's yeah. discourses in Corinthians. So I'm going to give Nick Frederick the blue ribbon for being courageous, <laughs> because he took it on. He gave it his best trying to explain the intertextuality, how it's there and how it's woven. I love this phrase he coined. He said, sometimes if you think intertextuality, if it were done awkwardly, it would be like a textual Frankenstein. Parts of the book have been so clumsily constructed that the seams linking the Book of Mormon to the Bible are not only visible, but obtrusive, like it was cut and paste. That the Book of Mormon largely avoids this speaks to its complexity. I do think one of the wonderful things Nick and others who have done work along the same lines and following his work have done and are doing is since they're not afraid of these intertextual moments, instead they're going to dig into them and say, well, do they work? How is the Book of Mormon using and interweaving New Testament concepts? And of course, for a Latter-day Saint mind, immediately you get stuck and you're like, oh, no, no, it can't. It can't be doing that. And Nick has jumped over that stuckedness, so to speak, and is saying it's there and we need to acknowledge that it's there and then say, well, how is the Book of Mormon using these? And it turns out it uses the in very sophisticated, nuanced ways. It takes logic that's embedded in the New Testament. It doesn't just repeat it. It just doesn't copy and paste it. It shifts it. Sometimes it turns it on its head. Sometimes it'll pull reasoning from a part of Paul 
or that's similar to something Paul's doing, and it will do it differently, and then it'll pull some other reasoning. Well, and the reality is Paul did this with Old Testament verses as well. He's going to take something said in the Old Testament, and then he sort of shifts it. He turns it on its head, and it comes alive again. And so this is actually a very beautiful thing that scriptures do with themselves, that later scriptural authors do, is they take something, and they reform it and reshape it, and it comes to life. And, and I guess it could be a Frankenstein, right, that is ugly and awkward in its life. The Book of Mormon, as, as Frederick Well says, isn't uh, typically that way. It actually, it, it's almost seamless, so much so that it can be missed entirely if one isn't careful and looking for that intertextuality. So then you go back to that stuckedness. You know, let's not just completely leave that alone. And you say, well, what do we do with that? That Book of Mormon authors lived before the New Testament was written or compiled It's not just that there are some similar phrases or some similar concepts. Sometimes it appears to be purposefully working and interweaving with the way the New Testament authors structured their very texts. And so what do you do with that? And you say, well, okay, let's take the opposite side. It is very difficult, and no one has successfully done it yet, at least in my view, and I think in most people's view, Who then was capable of putting this together? Who could have created this sophisticated, nuanced, interwoven in beautiful ways text? And it's hard to find that individual. Joseph Smith at that point, all you got to do is just read some of his early journals and you got to X him out. I think you have to, as much of a genius as he was. Just read his journals. Oliver Cowdery didn't think that way. He didn't write that way. Sidney Rigdon is maybe your best one, but he's he, there's no way to have him on the scene unless you're just really creating, you know, carefully some reconstructing history, so to speak, right? To get him on the scene somehow in a secretive way. I think, uh, yeah, Nick mentioned several times. He doesn't bring up the topic of who wrote this, but mm-hmm. he said, look how complex this is. I have a graduate degree from Claremont. He didn't say that. I know that. (laughs) And I found these things. I never saw them before. Unless Nick had taken me step by step through Abinadi's teachings, I would not have come to the conclusion that he was reinterpreting Paul. I also like how you tied what the Book of Mormon is doing to the New Testament to what the New Testament was doing to the Old Testament, constant reinterpretation. It kind of ties it into that body of Christian scripture that we have. It does. And even, it seems, though it's, even though it can be uncomfortable. It, it can, and it seems purposeful, right? But sophisticated, not clumsy. Like you said, we need degrees, uh, you know, and, and Nick's paper is very sophisticated in, in its analysis, right? And you gave a nod to this earlier when you talked about how the Book of Mormon plays with the time-space continuum, right? In, in, a, in a way, that was maybe a science fiction-y way of saying it, you know, but where the Book of Mormon does interweave prophets and prophets know the future, and sometimes they know the future very clearly, and God is speaking, and and when prophets are seeing future things, well, are they standing in the future? A Mormon and Moroni seem to know us very well and be speaking to future audiences. However... One comes to understand this, to avoid it, to pretend that it's not there, you lose so much of the richness and and the the power of what Abinadi is trying to accomplish. So to embrace it and to leave some ambiguity there, 
I think is where we're left. Uh, that's where I'm left. I, I have to say, I don't know exactly how that happened. We have touched on this briefly a couple times, but the thing that many people find disturbing from Abinadi is that it does seem like he is presenting Jesus the Christ and the Eternal Father as the same person. And in this chapter on intertextuality, Nick kind of addresses it, but I appreciated as a consumer that when you didn't know answers, you didn't give answers. <laughs> you just said, we don't know. This is one way of looking at it. And I think Nick's explanation came across a little bit like modalism, mm. to me at least, where he could be acting in the capacity of a father at some times and in the Christ another times. But then it says, well, you know, he condescended to come down here and... So not every question is answered in 400 pages on your book of Abinadi, but at least you give us some tools for some study to start to think about it and to realize this is an incredibly complex book. So now we're going to go to your chapter. Okay. Let, and, can I say something yeah. about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. So and I think one of the things that Nick hints at or gives a nod to is something that I found fascinating about the Book of Mormon, and that is it actually progresses in similar ways to how the understanding of the Old Testament to the New Testament progress. And so you've got it doing things that are very Johannine with Abinadi, right, where he is Christ is a divine figure, but also mortal, and he's showing this divinity of Christ and the importance of the mortality and the divinity seems to be what he's digging into. These are Christian viewpoints before Christ has actually come, but this is sort of the point of the Book of Mormon, that there's this developing understanding. It, it, there's plenty of nods to this sort of early misunderstanding about Christ, and you're learning more and more, and Abinadi is digging into issues that John is going to deal with. How does Christ accomplish this? Is he a mortal Messiah given God-like powers? Is this God who is also mortal? And Abinadi is dealing with these issues in ways that the New Testament is going to do, and he's doing it chronologically anyway, before the New Testament does. And then you see it continue in Third Nephi, where you've got Christ there among them, and he's praying to a separate entity in heaven, and it's very New Testamenty, right? And and it also leaves some a little bit of ambiguity in ways that the first vision, Joseph Smith's first vision, doesn't. The Book of Mormon leaves some ambiguity and some exploration room, and I, I find that fascinating too. So. As I was reading this, and I'm glad you added that point, I thought studying church history, we clearly see them learning line upon line upon line. There will be this revelation They'll do that for a while, and then they're like, oh, let's scrap that. Let's add a, some more mm -hmm. duties to what an apostle is. Okay, let's scrap that. Let's do this. It really had never crossed my mind that maybe the early prophets in the Book of Mormon could have been learning line upon line as well. Did they know the end of the story at the beginning? Probably not. I guess there gives that room for growth, like... You know, maybe Abinadi was saying that. The Book of Mormon seems to be indicating that 
for us at time. You know, Alma gives us this very nice moment where he's like, well, I don't know the answer to that, but I, here I am wondering. And then the very next thing he says is, well, I prayed about it and now I know. And so you actually can see some overt line upon line. Maybe I'm reading it into the text there with Lehi, but Lehi strikes me as just a little bit surprised when he gets his very first vision. And certainly the Jews around him are furious with it. And then there's there's learning that continues from there. And they're pleased and they're surprised and they're excited to learn new things. Yeah. So I appreciate uh, those thoughts. Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, of course, is the most obvious example of intertextuality. They're the chapters we skip. And, <laughs> and we've uh, heard from Joe Spencer a lot on the use of Isaiah. Your chapter specifically addressed how Isaiah and even Exodus from the King James Version of the Bible was changed and used by Abinadi. So how did that happen? I see it a little bit differently than the way maybe you just stated it. I see these King James Version renderings as being part of the modern translation process, as Joseph Smith's translation process. And so however Abinadi said it, he was reflecting the text of his time or possibly modifying the text of his time as he taught, sometimes maybe even misquoting a little bit the text of his time. And then there's another layer that is added as it's translated in modernity that then overtly and clearly relies on the language of the King James Version. And that is a point I make very pointedly and purposefully and strongly in my article. You can't pretend there isn't a reliance on King James Version here. It's not, if you go, already they're one step removed in their language, whatever they're speaking, they've already done some translating in their quotations, and then we're bringing it into English. And when you translate from one language into another language, and you've got a triangle there, and then you've got the Bible that's been translated into English in the King James Version, those aren't going to sound exactly the same. It's just not the way translation works. These sound exactly the same, except for in a few places, the variants that I mentioned. There's 20 of them, right, in Exodus and in Isaiah. There's 20 differences. And so then one of the nice things that does for a modern reader, all of us reliant upon the King James Version, especially in Joseph Smith's day, is it points out the differences. It makes the differences easy to detect. Okay, let's go there. Okay. <laughs> because... I think we recognize the KJV, but you have found something deeper and more important about the variations. Yeah. Let's talk about the variations and how non-random they may be. Yeah. So I mentioned in my study, there's 20 variations or variants, and they're actually different kinds of variants. And I, I give possible explanations for why those might exist. And interestingly enough, 14 of the 20 do find support in other ancient witnesses, whether that be the Septuagint, the Targumim, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You find these actually elsewhere in other ancient manuscripts. And so the possibility, the very real possibility exists that he's using an ancient manuscript that is different than okay. what we have. I'm going to interrupt because you've used a lot of terms that listeners might not be familiar with, like Turgamese and... 
Masoretic text. Can you define all those different sources that you looked at? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ancient witnesses. Some of them are better than others in ways. Um, The Septuagint, for example, is an ancient Greek translation that was mostly done prior to the time of Christ, so it's not done by Christians, but shows some later Christian influence. In certain places, the Targumim, it's a Jewish document that uh, uses and relies upon the Old Testament and translates it with some interpretation into Aramaic. Dead Sea Scrolls, I think most people are familiar with, by at least by name, are these Jewish documents that include, these Jewish manuscripts that include the great Isaiah scroll and other Isaiah texts. And so you can compare and contrast them, and sometimes they're different. And what turns out to be the case, I actually do a comparison with Dead Sea Scrolls in my paper, and I translate the Dead Sea Scrolls so that it looks just like the King James Version, unless there's a variant. And I actually did this. I've I've published a book that purposefully, not connected to this Abinadi project, purposefully wanted to compare Dead Sea Scrolls to show the changes for an English reading audience. And so I took King James Version... And then I just used the King James Version again as I was translating Dead Sea Scrolls, and I only changed the English where there was a variant in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where there was a difference, so that it could be seen. And it turns out that some of the Book of Mormon differences are similar to the differences you find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And maybe more importantly, the kinds of differences you see in the Book of Mormon are similar to the kinds of differences you see in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Book of Mormon becomes a potentially credible ancient text that shows the kinds of differences you might expect in an ancient manuscript. Maybe one more topic on intertextuality. And I know this annoys biblical scholars a little bit, but people will say that intertextuality maybe is anachronistic or there must have been a real Jonah because Jesus quoted Jonah. Mm. Can you speak to that? Jesus, what he's doing as he's quoting Jonah, some people will say, well, then Jonah must have existed and the story must be precisely historically accurate. And of course, that possibility remains. But Jesus's point is not necessarily, he's not saying, I'm going to tell you a story about Jonah to prove to you that the Jonah story existed. He's just taking the Jonah story and he's using it. He's working with it. There's another great example with the discussion of the the Red Sea, right? In the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't appear to be appropriately translated as Red Sea. It's the Sea of Reeds, probably, right? Not even the Red Sea. But in the Book of Mormon, it shows up as the Red Sea. And lo and behold, in the New Testament, it shows up as the Red Sea as well. In Doctrine and Covenants, it shows up in the Red Sea. And when people ask me about this, I think, well, is God really trying to teach us correctly? No, no, no. You've been confused all along. It's not the Red Sea. It's the Sea of Reeds. That's not the point here. That's not the point at stake. So you've got to take the point at stake, you know, the point that matters, the point that Jesus is making, and not have him making arguments that he wasn't interested in making, it would appear. Pay attention to what he's doing with parables. Pay attention to what he's doing with stories. What's the point he's making? And, and don't try to do too much work with those, too much sort of modern-minded work is, is my take on that anyway. At the conclusion of reading this book, it was exciting for me because I didn't feel like I knew all the answers. I had some ideas, but what it really encouraged me to do was to read the Book of Mormon. So I think as an editor, 
that success for you. Was that one of your goals? Absolutely. And I appreciate that, Laura. So we really didn't want to create an answer text, right? Uh, Here's where you find all of your answers about the book of Abinadi. Rather, what we wanted to do, what we hope to do, is to open the text up and shine a light on some things other people might not have seen before and then explore them and point the way for exploration. And I'm grateful to hear that at least to a certain degree it functioned that way. And I've got to give just a brief nod to something we're excited about in the book, which there's an appendix that shows literary illusions and intertextuality in, I mean, it's, it's really long and there's, it's full of footnotes that just explore the text. And personally, if there's any budding Book of Mormon scholars out there, I, I would just point you to that appendix and say, I think in every one of those chapters that we do this appendix for, as you read, you'll find five to ten papers waiting to be written, digging into those intertextual illusions and what they might mean and and what Abinadi was doing with them or what the Book of Mormon authors were doing with them. So uh, thank you, Laura, for that. Just briefly tell us what the other two lenses you explored were. We're not going to talk about them now because I'm not done with this book. I love it so much. I want to talk to more of your authors. Wonderful. So the last two lenses, we've got a, a historical, cultural context kind of a lens, which really means Mesoamerican or North American history, culture, that kind of thing. And so one of those papers deals with East Wind, this odd reference to an East Wind in the Book of Mormon. And would that have meant anything to American people? What's it doing in the text, right? And then the other paper uses both Mesoamerican and North American because, of course, uh, we, we don't really want to dig in and say this, this happened in this certain place. So we, we took a broader look at it. And it's a wonderful paper on the scourging when Abinadi was scourged with faggots. And, and it's it's got the drawings in the book, right? So if you're looking for artwork, go to go to that chapter. And so you get a historical, cultural context lens, and then you get a philosophical, theological lens at the end that works with some of the theology in the 19th century when the Book of Mormon came forth and said, well, what work is it trying to do there as it comes forth? What points does it have to make for its 19th century audience? And then what are some philosophical implications as we dig into just sometimes very small phrases in the Book of Mormon and show just how powerful and impactful the way that Abinadi puts his text together, his language together, and the powerful implications philosophically and theologically that they can have for us. In that philosophical lens, Amy Easton Flake has a chapter that is absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. She mentions that the Book of Mormon is often touted as one of the most influential religious works of the 19th century, but then it isn't studied. So what she did was she took the doctrines of Abinadi and put them in a 19th century context and showed how they compared or were very different, Yeah, which is an interesting thing to think about when you're thinking historicity. Just another idea in your head. Her paper to me interweaves in interesting ways with Nick Fredericks, right? Because 
Nick Frederick takes something that you say, well, is the Book of Mormon just doing a copy and paste? And he comes away saying, no, it is doing, it, it's carving its own territory here and in really profound ways. And Amy's paper does the same thing. The Book of Mormon seems to be speaking to something that was a raging conflict in the 19th century, and that is the topic of infant salvation. And it doesn't take a Baptist position, it doesn't take a Methodist position, doesn't take a Unitarian position. It does this interesting, you know, charting its own course there and teaches beautiful doctrines that are still important to Latter-day Saints today that are in their own place, you know, that don't perfectly reflect any of the thinking, even though they inter seem to intersect with it in fascinating ways. I just want to bring up a quote at the end of your introduction, which to me was almost like a conclusion after your studies of Abinadi. You said the Book of Mormon may not have been a modern creation, but it was certainly a modern translation. Understanding the Book of Mormon as a translated text helps Latter-day Saints navigate the ancient nature, all of the antiquity that we find in the Book of Mormon with the modernity, sometimes anachronisms, right? Well, of course, if it's a modern translation, it's going to matter to us. And of course, as Latter-day Saints, we see ancient prophetic voices seeing us as well. But even in the process of a modern translation, it comes to life for us. Otherwise, it'd be some in, in some ancient language we couldn't read anyway. As you translate it into a modern language, then it comes into a modern world. And it has some things that you only find in the modern world because it was translated in the modern world. But I deeply believe it's an ancient product made alive for us here in the last days. And, and it has meaning for us still today. Well, thank you for this fascinating discussion. And please do this again. Tell your BOMA friends. We loved it. We want more. It's great. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate it. Good to talk with you today. Goodbye. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.